as we continue to work through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. If you try to Google, what is the secret to happiness? You're going to get all kinds of responses, aren't you? After reading a couple of articles this week, I was reminded of the world's main method of trying to find happiness and realizing that no matter what religion or lack of religion might have been the environment within which the suggestions would arise from, the main source of happiness always ended up being the same place. Where we would get happiness from always kind of comes from the same place, and that place is yourself, from within you. And once you get past the simple, you know, when good stuff happens, we're happy, when bad stuff happens, we're not. Once you get past that, uh, whether you're a Christian, Buddhist, atheist, or whatever, if you look for this secret to happiness, you're going to be encouraged to do things like meditate, uh, to play, to have a fun time, to, to be around other people, happy people, of course, to, to focus on the present, to bask in times of pleasure, etc. What amazes me is that when left to our own devices, when, when we are trying to come up with, with a way to find true happiness, what we're prone to do is to come up with a new set of rules. And we can call it what we want to, but ultimately what, what we want to do, even, even if we're trying to unlock a mystery or say that we're finding a path to freedom, whatever we want to call it, what we end up doing is sitting up a list of do's and don'ts. If you want to be happy, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Which, of course, if a person tries to do all those things perfectly and ends up not being happy after that's all done, well... They're going to be left feeling all the more hopeless. And then, of course, if we feel that way after doing all of that, it's our, it's our own fault, right? At least that's how we feel after that endeavor. Uh, we do all the research, went to the doctor, maybe even maybe took some medicine. Uh, all those professionals had their act together, or so it seems. And then we try and we try and we try but fail to achieve whatever that level of happiness is that we might desire and therefore only ending up feeling more depressed. When man tries to discover the key to true contentedness, happiness, man writes new rules and guidelines that man can't keep. And listen, a lot of things, a lot of things the world encourages you to do to be happy are not all wrong. Not all wrong, there's just common grace things. Like, for instance, uh, one of them would be having good rhythms in life. That's a popular phraseology right now. Having good rhythms or just having a right balance of work and rest. The Bible calls that Sabbath rest. Another idea would be meditation. Meditation. How about meditating on scripture and prayer? Another one would be staying positive. uh, Thinking about good things. Focusing on those, uh, doing it on purpose, regularly getting into the habit. Well, how about Philippians 4? Whatever things are true, honorable, just, pure, etc. Think on these things. Another one, of course, would be surrounding yourself with positive, like-minded people. If you want to be happy, be around happy. Well, how about the fellowship of the church that Christ calls us to? Remember, though, we are also supposed to be in the world, but not of it. Uh, too much now our society is only hanging out with people that agree with them in every way, shape, and form. That's not exactly a healthy way to go either, but certainly needed for us to come and be with citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Another one might be, oh, don't dwell on the past. Don't dwell on the past or bad things that are going on. 
Well, how about this promise? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? In sharing with the church the truth of Christ's coming again, Paul instructed us, encourage one another with these words. The promises of Christ are given to us. Encourage one another with these words. Build one another up. Another suggestion might be, uh, be creative. Unleash that artistic side of yourself. Uh, Listen to music. Sing. Or we might say, sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you get the point? What a great reminder this is that the word of God is sufficient and that we have everything we need in Christ for life and godliness. But also a reminder that, that if we think we're just going to do all these things, that it somehow is going to make us righteous or make us content, happy. Well, then we'll have just resorted to the same kind of thinking of the world under the brand name of Christianity. Does that make sense? Uh, we have a list of things to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be happy. And then we, we see in our Bibles, well, there's things like that in the Bible. So if I do this and do this and do this and do this that way, well, then I'll be happy. But what we've done is we've taken a, a world-first mentality, and then we've kind of laid over it Bible terms, and turns out the methodology still doesn't work, because that's not how God has given it to us. Ultimately, whenever happiness If we think the happiness is a result of do all these things without fail. Even if you try to use religion to do it, it is going to fall short. It's going to fall short. So what has Jesus said so far in Matthew 5? What brings happiness? Well, in verse 3, he said this. Blessed, or happy, content, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand and acknowledge they have nothing to offer spiritually. There is no righteousness in us. Anything we are, anything we become is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy entirely by the grace of God. Now that's different, isn't it? If I googled, what is the secret to happiness, I I wouldn't expect to see someone having at number one on their list, realize you are void of any goodness whatsoever. We're not going to find that. And yet, Jesus said this. And this was his number one on the list. And is in fact the foundation for the rest of this list, the Beatitudes. And then in in verse 4, Building on this acknowledgement of all that we can't accomplish so far, he adds this. Blessed, happy, contented are those who mourn. Mourn. For they shall be comforted. Happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. Mourning. Mourning, that's not exactly thinking happy thoughts. Uh, that's not the result of, of looking in the mirror and re- like reciting a mantra of how wonderful I am. It's not buying myself a flowers and sending them to myself or a gift to lift my spirit, which some health experts have suggested. There are many questions we could ask about this. Many. Uh, here are six questions I'm going to seek to answer this morning. Six questions about this verse. Number one, 
What does Jesus mean by mourning? What is it? But number two, why are we supposed to do it? Why are we to mourn? Number three, how? How do we mourn? Uh, there are right ways, there is a right way, and there are wrong ways to sorrow. What is the right way? Number four, who will be comforted? Who will be comforted? And number five, by whom? Who is going to comfort? If we're going to receive comfort, someone has to be doing the comforting. Who is that? And then number six, how does mourning bring happiness? How? That statement sounds so messed up, right? Happy are the sad. How? How does that work? So number one, number one, what is this mourning that Jesus is talking about? What is mourning? Uh, the pure definition of the word would just be uh, to be sad, to grieve, to lament. Uh, interestingly, uh, of the nine words in the Greek that could be used to speak of mourning or being sad, this word used here in this verse is the most severe. The most severe of all nine synonymous words as the one in this verse. It represents the most heartfelt grief. Uh, This word was usually reserved for those who were grieving the death of a loved one. It is a deep inner hurt, a deep grieving. It makes me think of of that numbness that you feel, Uh, the way, you know, you hear news and the way your eyes can just get stuck on something. You just can't think of anything else but that, and it renders you numb, motionless, because of the gravity Uh, the gravity of whatever it is that may have occurred, whether it be death or or something else. Uh, We should remember, of course, that this mourning is a spiritual mourning in the same way that our being poor in spirit was not a financial matter. It was a spiritual matter of a spiritual nature. Uh, Just like we couldn't sell all our possessions to make ourselves poor and somehow earn heaven through that, This verse is not a call to start a moaning, to start crying endless tears, to show just how sad we can be. So a right response to this message, this verse today, would not be to just start bawling our eyes out in a way that we can't control, in a way that never stops. That can't be the case, especially considering that this morning is going to bring comfort and happiness. But this morning, though, is a deep grief a sadness in our hearts uh, that results from something worth mourning over. Which brings up our second question. Why are we to mourn? Why? Uh, What is that something worth mourning over? And we could look all around us today. And if we want to find it, we can find reasons to mourn. We probably don't even have to want to find it to see them. I would think that even in the beginning, Adam and Eve mourned after they were expelled from the garden. And then I bet you they mourned again after their son murdered his own brother. I would imagine Noah and his family had some times of sadness after the entire world went underwater and they were the only ones left. It would have been kind of gross if they were like, woo, we made it. Who cares about all them? I would imagine there's some mourning there. Uh, Think about this. Why do we even need government today? Why do we need it? 
Why do we need police officers and judges, uh, prosecutors, defendants? Why is there such a thing as a defendant? Why are are, uh, some of the cities in our nation being burned, looted? Why is there a history of slavery or lynchings? Why do political candidates try to dig up as much dirt on each other as they can, and why do they do it so near the election? And why does it always seem like there's something to find? Why do we have to argue about capitalism and socialism and any other kind of economic system's strengths or weaknesses? Why does the government have to write child labor laws? Why do we even have to fight about minimum wage? Why are we even arguing about killing unborn children? Why would we ever see children as a pain, as a negative consequence? Why is there such a thing as a pandemic? Why do people get sick at all? Why do people die at all? Church, what's the answer? Sin. The answer to all of this is sin. Therefore, there's a lot to mourn over in this world, and it's all because of sin. In Romans 8, 23, and in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostles Paul uh, speaks of the groaning, the groaning that we do in this life while we await the day when there is no more sin in this world. And when there is no more sin in our hearts, in our lives. This is not a, boy, I can't wait till all these other crazy people are fixed. No, this crazy guy. Our own sin, our own lives. We groan, waiting for that day. He also says this about himself in Romans 7, 21 through 24, to which we can all say amen. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of my, uh, law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he says this, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver this body of death? In those verses, Paul uh, was acknowledging the battle. He acknowledges a battle, a war that is going on in every one of us. A war of sinful desires and righteousness, battling back and forth. And we do not have the power in and of ourselves to win that victory. We must be delivered. Paul says, who's going to deliver this body of death? And that right there is ultimately the answer to our question. Why are we to mourn? What is the sad reality that brings about our mourning? It's simply this, that we come to realize that we are, in fact, poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3. And we realize, I can't do this. I have failed, and I will. I do not have it in me to succeed, to be righteous. I have already, ultimately, failed God in my sinfulness. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead things don't decide to get up and change. 
And if you are a believer, you still sin. I still sin. We all do, don't we? And when we do, we are reminded of what we brought to the table in our relationship with God. And there is a right grieving that follows, and we'll see too in a little bit. There's also then thereafter a right rejoicing that follows. But when we bring that and we see that, it grieves us. And it grieves us to grieve the Holy Spirit. On our own, left to ourselves, we are impoverished spiritually. And this should grieve us. It is my own spiritual poverty that brings about this spiritual mourning in Matthew 5, 4. So you see how it's the poor in spirit is the foundation, which is followed by the mourning that comes after And as I said, hope is coming. There's a blessed answer to this problem, so stay tuned, okay? Number one, we said mourning is a deep spiritual grief. And number two, this mourning is a result, uh, our proper response to the reality of our spiritual bankruptcy, our sinfulness, our depravity. So then number three, number three, how do we mourn? How are we to mourn? Uh, What is the wrong way, and then what is the right way to mourn? And for this, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, we finished our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and and we learned a lot about the sin problems in the church at Corinth uh, that were going on in the church at the time. And, And in this passage, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of the grief that it seems his loving rebukes caused as the church heard and read and thought about what Paul was saying. So let's start reading Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Paul writes this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Why? Why only for a while? Verse 9, As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. Paul isn't simply just getting a kick out of making people feel bad, okay? That's not what it's all about. That'd be kind of yucky. Instead, it says Paul rejoiced because you, the church of Corinth, were grieved into repenting. It brought them to repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So already we see in these verses that there's, uh, there's going to be a grief that results uh, in no change and only sadness or even anger or, or a sense of loss in relationship towards the one who brought the reason for grief to your attention. There's going to be a grief, but it depends on how we respond to this that matters. There is a grief that results in no change or in reality a change for the worse because if we're hearing these things and we're, we're sorrowing but we're rejecting, that's not going to make us not get not get worse, there's going to be a negative consequence to that even too, isn't there? But then there's also a grief that is of God, that is godly, that results in repentance. So two kinds of grieving, two kinds of sorrow. One that doesn't change us and only would make us worse, and one that is godly and that brings repentance. So let's keep reading verse 10. For godly grief, grief that is of God, produces, results in a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas 
worldly grief, the grief that comes out of our own natural hearts, produces death. Verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief uh, has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And what this is saying is that when we sin and God graciously grants us an accurate awareness of what we've done, of our true condition, it will result in change. It will result in change. So this godly sorrow will be, godly sorrow will be earnest, will be ambitious to make it right, eager, like we can't even hardly wait to resolve conflicts and hurts and make restitution. We will be indignant toward our sin. It will be our enemy, not our secret friend. We will be ready to attack it and put it off with all zeal. These are outward fruits of our inward spiritual mourning. So then, what would be the outward fruits of worldly sorrow? Well, the opposite of all that. Instead of being ambitious to make it right, we'd be ambitious to to give reasons why we didn't have any other choice. Uh, Maybe shifting the blame. Instead of being eager to resolve conflicts and to make restitution, we'll be asking, do I have to talk to them? Uh, Maybe if I ignore it, uh, it'll just go away after a while. You know, time heals all wounds. Maybe I'll say, you know, boy, I'm really sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry if I offended anyone. And whenever you want to talk about it, I'm ready. And then when they are, the person with worldly sorrow tells them how it was actually their fault that everything happened. The person with worldly sorrow will be grieved more so because they got caught or because things aren't going well for them at this point. And will be more upset about their own punishment or their own consequences than they'll care at all about punishing that sin that remains in their heart. Uh, The person with worldly sorrow will be more afraid of what people are going to think about them, how it's going to affect them when they find out what they did. But the person with true, godly sorrow will fear God. They will revere God and will be more concerned with the hurt they caused others by what they did than how they feel like it might hurt them. It is hard to be comforted, to be comforted when all the loose ends and all the pain that your sin causes, all those broken relationships are left undealt with, unresolved. It's hard to be comforted in that, especially when your conscience through all of those instances becomes more and more seared, calloused. And when we leave things undealt with, when we leave things unresolved, when we leave sins unreconciled and refuse to do that over and over and continue to shift the blame and shift the blame and our consciences are calloused in that way, watch out for all the damage that could be done without even feeling it uh, in our lives. Remember, the reality is we are all poor in spirit. That's not something that we become to feel and it becomes true of us as we feel it. It's something that's already true of us 
and we need to realize it. And we need God's grace. We need God's grace to break up the hard ground of our hearts, to bring us to mourning, to bring us godly sorrow so that we can repent, so that we can then be comforted. We need to mourn with godly sorrow. A person who mourns like that is a person who is about to repent and a person who is then repenting. For the unbeliever, if this kind of godly sorrow enters your heart, your mind, the Lord is leading you to repentance and salvation. For the believer, praise God, nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. And God is going to be faithful, Philippians 1, 6, to complete the work he started in you. It's on him to finish it. And he's going to. He's promised it. So Christians, when we sin... And it grieves us, and we repent and make it right. It is a sure fire sign that God has us. Isn't that awesome? It is a sure fire sign that God has us, that He is working on us, that He is making us more like Christ. Praise God. So then, question number four how? How will we be comforted? How will we be comforted? And I think I just answered that question in part. When we see repentance and growth, it proves that God has saved us and is working faithfully in our lives because we wouldn't be like that without him. We just wouldn't be. Repentance itself should bring us comfort, which also means this, as we mourn, and the word for mourn that Jesus used is a a present participle, meaning it is ongoing. It is here and it goes. So we sin And we are aware, and we mourn, and we are comforted. And then we sin, and we are aware, and we mourn, and we are comforted. Praise God that the comfort we receive is just as frequent as the sin we can commit. There isn't a a way that it just runs out. We will be comforted whenever we need it. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We can also compare this verse... Uh, to the previous verse in the sense of contingency, meaning this. Uh, Here's a question for verse 3. Who will inherit the kingdom of heaven? We look at verse 3. Who will inherit the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is the poor in spirit. And we can infer only the poor in spirit. Same thing in verse 4. Remember this, the the Pharisee who bragged about uh, how awesome he was did not go home justified. And that tax collector, remember him, who beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He did go home justified. His was the kingdom of heaven. The same thing for verse 4. Who will be comforted? And the answer is, the one who mourns. And we can say then too, and only the one who mourns. The person who only expresses worldly sorrow will not receive comfort. The one who expresses godly sorrow will receive comfort. In Luke, Luke 6, 25, uh, Jesus said it this way, Woe to you who laugh now. This is just a flip of Matthew 5, 4. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And I would encourage you to look at this teaching from Jesus in two ways. Number one, if I have worldly sorrow, or if I don't have any sorrow at all, 
as if I've never done anything wrong, there will be no comfort. Uh, No comfort will come. Only mourning and weeping in the future. And then number two, sometimes we can get the idea that if we're, if we're down in the dumps, if we're just feeling bad all the time, that we just have to turn that frown upside down, right? Or, or we try to prevent others from feeling any sadness because of their sin. We think, just, just smile. Come on, I know, I don't, don't be sad. Don't be sad. It's okay. Just smile. Just smile. You just gotta power through this. Just be happy. Be, think happy thoughts. But if the cause of sorrow is our sin, there is no powering through it. And if we try to power through it and ignore it, what have we left undone? There's no repentance. We can't power through it ourselves. We don't even have that kind of power. Remember, that is uh, like one of those new rules. It's a, a trick to make the secret of happiness come true for us. It's a new rule to make those bad feelings go away. It's just another form of legalism, and it will fail. And remember this too. Our emotions are not broken. Our emotions are not broken. Uh, There are times when we feel certain ways, and those feelings are a gift from God. And if if we're driving our car and the dashboard light's going off, and we say, oh, just slap a smile on it. Maybe you've got like a happy face sticker and throw it right on there so you can't see that check engine light anymore. Fixed it. No. Those emotions can be a gift from God. We have to think through that and, and, and look and ask God to help us to see our own hearts according to the truth of his word. Is that there because there's something I need to see and repent? Mourn, grieve, be comforted. I have to look and see. Instead, Christ has called us. We could say he's gifted us to mourn. Gifted us to grieve. Don't run from it. And he gifts us with godly sorrow when what we need is repentance. Not the power of positive thinking. Not in that way. And then the comfort comes. Isn't God gracious to us to give us that grief? Knowing that that's when the comfort comes. And then uh, this question number five. Who's comforting us? The comfort's going to come. Who's doing it? Who's doing the comforting? If we are being comforted, that word is passive. If we're being comforted, who is doing the comforting? And let me read to you Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. See if this sounds familiar to you. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to uh, bring good news to the poor. Who? Who? The poor, as in, in spirit. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Guess who read that passage? In Nazareth, at the synagogue, and said, Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yep, that was Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. And how did Jesus bring us comfort? Well, how about by taking care of the reason for our mourning? Our sin. When Jesus died on the cross in our place, the price to pay 
for that which we mourn, our sin. That, that price was paid in full. So we who mourn over our sin are comforted by the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's paid. It's finished. And Jesus gave us this comfort. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And even though Jesus has ascended into heaven, we have another comforter. John fourteen sixteen, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Uh, this word is translated as comforter in the, in the King James Version because it, it comes from the same root word in the Greek. In verse 26 in John 14, Jesus goes on to say, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we could say this. What methodology does the Holy Spirit use to help us, to come alongside of us and to take us from our mourning to blessedness? The answer is he points us to the truth. The Holy Spirit points us to the truth, knowing the word, understanding the truth of the gospel, being guided by scripture, brings us comfort and blessedness, happiness. Okay, so we have, we have Jesus as one of our comforters, and we have the Holy Spirit working alongside of us. Who else? Is there anyone else that God has decided to use to bring us comfort, to bring comfort to the morning? And the answer is yes. We're going to see in this passage, God the Father's involved, but also you, the church. It's you. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So again, the Father comforts us too. All the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, involved in bringing us comfort. How cool is that? God the Father comforts us in all our afflictions so that we, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we are comforted by God. So we see this order. After we see our sin, that we are poor in spirit, there is right grieving, mourning, which brings then comfort. And where does that comfort come from? Well, from God the Father, referred to in this Second Corinthians 1 as the God of all comfort. It comes from God the Son, the one who came to comfort all who mourned through his substitutionary death. It also comes through God the Spirit, who comforts us and guides us in the truth of God's word pointing us to Christ, and it comes from you, the church, who have received all this same comfort, who then are ready to pass on this comfort through the Spirit-inspired word, pointing people to the work of Christ in the gospel, looking forward to the blessed hope of his return. And again, just like the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16 there, we know this. God has given you the church to bring you comfort. And God has appointed you to bring comfort to the church. It goes both ways, doesn't it? 
It goes both ways. Praise God. And then the end result of all this is blessedness, happiness. How does God bring about happiness through mourning? How does mourning bring this about, this happiness? This is going to sound like a weird passage to read for this question, but turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. And we're going to see a lot of the same terminology in these verses, uh, almost like James was using Jesus' teaching as a reference. Hmm. (laughs) But here's what James writes, uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we might ask this question when we read those instructions. How? How? I can't do that on my own. I'm poor. I'm spiritually broke. If I try to clean my own hands, I'm going to use uncleanness to do it, right? So then James gives the answer, which is a confirmation of the fact that we can't fix ourselves. Verse 9. Be wretched. Remember Paul said in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Be wretched. Acknowledge that's where I stand. And then he says, And mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That sounds just like Luke 6. Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Acknowledge that you really are, in fact, poor in spirit, uh, that you, so that you would mourn over your sinful condition. And then what does it say? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. God will do this. It's his doing. God is the one doing the exalting. You just get exalted. This is a pronouncement. A pronouncement. This is not an emotional wave that you ride into the sunset with a smile on your face. Does that make sense? This is not just a chain of events that makes you feel better and it just sticks. It's more than that. And it's way better. God has declared it. It's not something I'm going to figure out. God has declared it. God has decided it. God has granted it. God has promised it. And he never changes. And he never breaks his promises. There's there's joy in following Jesus, right? There's joy and comfort in knowing our sins paid for, forgiven. There's joy in looking forward to Jesus' return and the kingdom and eternity with him, with no sin, no sickness, no death. That can put a smile on your face. But what God has promised us here, and therefore what Jesus is pronouncing even in the Beatitudes, as each verse starts, blessed, 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 happy, happy, happy. What Jesus is pronouncing is that God is guaranteeing your happiness, your contentedness, your blessedness. That means even if you're having a bad day, we're going to have those. This is not just a smile 24-7 situation. We're going to have bad days. We're going to have bad weeks. Maybe even a rough year. Regardless, it's never more than a temporary feeling. 
those bad times are never more than a temporary feeling, a temporary countenance. Because there will come a day when this happiness is conferred upon you, (laughs) given to you, never to be taken away. That's what God's promising. Whoa. So number one, mourning is a deep spiritual grief. And number two, this mourning is a result, uh, our proper response to the reality of our spiritual bankruptcy, our sinfulness, our depravity. Number three, this mourning is a godly sorrow which produces repentance. Which, number four, brings a faithful, deep, and abiding comfort. A comfort of our soul. Through, number five, the work of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the will of the Father, and through our relationships in the church which will all end in, number six, a pronounced, conferred, eternal happiness in God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great promise. Thank you that we can look at a a verse like this and see this idea of us mourning and to see that surrounded by comfort and happiness. Lord, I thank you that you have opened our eyes. Those of us here who are followers of Jesus Christ, you've opened our eyes. We've been able to see the true condition of our heart, to know our need to cry out for rescue, for deliverance. And God, we thank you that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That we could be here and know you've promised us salvation. You, you, you purchased us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin is paid in full. And this happiness is coming. And the comfort is here. That we could go through this life and even though there is still a war going on in our hearts, even though there are times where we sin, that that sin reminds us of your greatness, of your kindness, of your grace, of your love for us. That comforts us, Lord. May it also encourage us to fight the battle all the more in your will, with your grace, resting and delighting in your mercy. Lord, I pray for those who are here today that maybe have never heard this before, who have never put their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. God, I pray that you would work in their heart, that you would bring them to life, bring them to repentance, that they would call on you even today and be saved. And God, I pray as we receive this comfort from you, that we would also then love one another and share this comfort amongst the fellowship of this church. May we love one another uh, as you have first loved us. And Lord, as we go through the rest of this day and, and even this week and all of the things that are happening around us and all of the reasons we might see that are worthy of some mourning, may we, Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And seek to honor and glorify you in all that we do. And I pray all of this in Christ's name.
Amen.